Today is taken from John chapter 19, verses 1 through 16. This is the word of God. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic, Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Thank you. Let us pray once more for the preaching of God's word. Father, we thank you that... Um, You've given us the privilege to know you. Not only have you revealed yourself, Lord God, in the Old Testament through promises and the prophets and the patriarchs and the covenants, Lord, but you've also shown yourself climactically in your son, Jesus Christ, who not only took on flesh, but rather he as a true man, the true God, he as a true Adam, Lord God, would take up our punishment, would be tempted and tried in our place, who would enter into a garden just like Adam was in a garden, who would resist temptation like Adam was tempted, but rather he would succeed when Adam had failed. So, Father, help us now understand this Christ. Help us now understand who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Help us understand the significance of the crown of thorns, the significance of the cross, the significance of this trial for Pilate. Help us understand this text well so we come home, Lord God, with a greater understanding of the gospel and a greater understanding of this passage, and therefore a deeper love of you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, uh, one way we can understand much of the gospel of John is that it's a book filled with ironies. It's a book filled with ironies precisely because John was an eyewitness. He was an eyewitness, and he was a disciple of Christ, and he would consider himself one of the closer disciples of Christ, and he was there throughout all of these events throughout Jesus' life, but then after that, this book was written about 60, 70 years after Christ's death, 
after that, after witnessing all of that, after living through all of that, he looks back unto his life with Christ. He looks back unto his time with Christ. And then he now sees different statements that Christ made, different statements that Pilate made, the different statements that Caiaphas, the high priest, had made, and then sees in them a deeper and newer significance precisely because he now comes and looks at those events with new eyes. In light of the resurrection, in light of who he knows Christ truly is to be, the true light of God, the true God of God, the true light of the world who came into human flesh, he now looks upon all those events with new and fresh eyes because he, he can't help it, right? Everything about the life Death and crucifixion of Christ takes on a new significance in light of the resurrection, in light of his reflections on what Christ had done, in light of seeing the fullness of Christ's work and person, right? One of the greatest uh, pop literary examples of this, one of the greatest reveals that I think exemplifies this, for example, is in the Harry Potter books. You know, in the Harry Potter books, for example, in the first, what is it, five to six books or five to six movies, depending on whether you saw the movies or, or just the books or vice versa, right? You see the shady character in the first five or six books named Snape. And you're watching the movies as a little kid, right, or whatever. And you're watching the movies when you're younger and you're reading the books and you're always constantly thinking to yourself, this Snape guy is uh, surely kind of odd and kind of shady. You know, he's slithering. He's kind of slithery, right? So it's this Snape guy. You're constantly like questioning his motives. And he's also, you know, mixing potions and things like that. You're just wondering what he's really up to. What is he doing with Harry Potter? What does he really mean when he says that? What kind of evil motives are really underneath him, right? And then suddenly, towards the ending of the series, it is revealed that all along, and, uh, you know, all along, Snape was actually in love with Harry's mother. And then, you know, remember that scene Dumbledore said, all this time? Always. And everybody's crying. But, you know, um, but, but Snape, right, that reveal uh, causes you then suddenly, you, you want, suddenly you want to rewatch every movie that came before that movie. Suddenly you want to reread the novels, and then you're reading everything in light of a different eyes, right? Like, you're, you're suddenly seeing the things that Snape did, and you're seeing the things that Snape says, and then suddenly there's a subtext underneath everything. You know, whether or not that's intended by J.K. Rowling, we don't know. But suddenly you want to read the rest of the series and, and the first books again, and you're reading everything with new eyes. Suddenly things that Snape did and said has a double meaning to it. So when he was whispering those things to Harry, he meant something different by it than what you first thought. There was something different. There's a double meaning to it. And we saw that in the Gospel of John throughout. Right? There's just so much ironies that suddenly John is looking back, and then he sees that there's a double meaning to it now. So, for example, when Jesus was, you know, hassled by his mother to change water into wine because they were trying to celebrate another wedding when truly the real groom was Jesus himself. Not the, the point of the wedding wasn't them, but rather Christ was the true groom. So Jesus was being hassled by the Pharisees for cleaning out the temple only to find out later on that John now knows that Jesus was talking about his body. His body's the true temple. Jesus is our temple because he is where we meet God truly, no longer in a physical temple. Jesus, when he was feeding uh, the people with the bread, and then the people wanted to make him king because they wanted more bread, more miracles from Jesus. Only then, John, to realize that Jesus was the true bread of life. It's not about the physical bread. Jesus was doing the miracle because he was saying that he was the true food of God. When people were celebrating the Feast of Booths, which, which you know, signified the Jewish heroes, and they were missing that Jesus was right there. When Jesus was the true hero, 
In other words, this gospel is just filled with ironies. And a few weeks ago, we saw one of the deeper ironies to where Caiaphas says that they want to kill Jesus so that Rome would get off their backs. If we kill Jesus and we stop creating social disorder in the society, Rome would get off our backs, Christ is taken care of, and we Jews are saved. So one man should die for the many. It is expedient for one man to die for the many. We saw that John 18, 13 and 14. But now you see that as a double meaning because even though the Jews were trying to kill Jesus for political purposes, for pragmatic purposes, so to get Rome off of their backs, God was sacrificing Christ, yes, to save his people, but not from political oppression, from their sins and from their death. So you're reading the gospel again in light of the prologue, in light of John's reflecting back on everything, and then you're seeing a double meaning to all of these statements. And you're going to see this especially today. In verses 1 to 16, you're going to see these double meanings again and again and again because as the soldiers were mocking him, as Pilate was questioning him, as this was taking place during Passover, as Pilate rendered a judgment from a judgment seat, all of these double meanings, all these connotations, especially when you read it in a lot of the book of Genesis, will come around again. All right? So in light of that, there's three points to today's text. First, we're going to see in the first six or seven verses that Jesus is the true man. He's the true Adam. He's the true humanity. He's the true representative of humanity. He's man himself, the archetypical man. That's the first point. Second point is that Jesus is the true God. God, therefore, who is absolute God over an authority under all of this. And third, Christ is the true king who is also a lamb. So first, Jesus true man. Second, Jesus true God. And third, Jesus the lamb who is also at the same time king. So let's pick up with the first point. Jesus, the true man. Look at the first uh, six verses here. We remember in verse 1 picks off right where uh, John 18 left us off. Remember where John 18 left off. Pilate had offered Barabbas, and the crowd took Barabbas instead of Christ. Barabbas, the sinner, the rebel, the, the robber. Pilate says, who do you want to be released? And they picked Barabbas over Christ. So the sinner was let go of, whereas Christ, the innocent one, remember Pilate already rendered the verdict that he's actually innocent, is now captured. And the Jews want to see him punished. And in an attempt to appease the Jews, Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And that's in verse 1 of chapter 19. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they arrayed him in a purple robe. So why did the soldiers do this? Remember, so Pilate's trying to appease the Jews, uh, and, and, and Pilate let go of Barabbas. Jesus is punished, and he's flogged. But remember, in those days, in the ancient world, punishment is not just taking place in physical pain. They don't just execute you. When the Romans, for example, were persecuting Christians, Back in the second century, the Romans were literally crucifying Christians in the entrances of the city. Where so that anyone who enters into the city or anyone that exits the city would see Christians crucified and, and the Romans would light them by fire. So that everyone could see in a public spectacle kind of way that Christians who are being persecuted shouldn't mess with Rome. In other words... Part of the punishment in the ancient world was not just the physical pain itself. It was never discreet. It was rather always in the exemplification of mockery, in the shaming socially as well. So it's, it's not just physical 
punishments. It's also social shame carried to it as a public display to other people. So this is why the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on Jesus' head and arrayed him in a purple robe. Why? Because apparently, according to the Jews, he made himself out to be a king. He was trying to threaten Caesar's authority. He was making himself out to be a kind of son of God. And so the Roman soldiers twisted this together and put him on purple robe. And purple, by the way, is a, um, an expensive clothing only worn by the royal, only worn by the rich, only worn by the wealthy. And they put this on him as a sort of public display of mockery. You make yourself out to be a king, let's make you into a king. Let's put a crown on you. Let's put you in with purple robes. And then they came up to him and they said, Hail, King of the Jews. A point of mockery which is completely ironic because we knew from the Gospel of John that Jesus truly is the King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Showing that even though Jesus was claiming himself out to be king, he was utterly helpless. Silent before them. What kind of king is this? So the mockery is ironic because it's on the one hand said by those who hate Christ, persecuting him, mocking him, putting him into public shame and display. But rather we know from reading the rest of the gospel that this is actually the truth. He really is the king of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands further and Pilate went out again. So this happened in the inner court in, the, in, 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 in Pilate's court himself by the soldiers of Pilate and then after this was done, Pilate took him out before the people and said to them, this is before the Jews and the crowds, now see I'm bringing out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Now Pilate is trying his best here to appease the crowd by punishing Jesus and making a public mockery out of him. But Pilate for now still has conscience binding him. I find no guilt in him. I'm not going to kill him. I'll flog him. I'll make a public display out of him. I'll mock him for you to appease you. But he reiterates again, this is not the first time he's reiterating it, that he finds no guilt in Christ. This is a public verdict of vindication. There is no guilt in Jesus Christ. And you're searing that as well, not just Pilate's private opinion, but also the truth about who Christ is. He was a man who's resisted all temptation. So Jesus came out. He wore the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Behold the man. Now just imagine the scene, right? Imagine the scene, especially when reading it in light of chapter 18 onwards. This is a temptation and a trial moment for Jesus Christ. He was apprehended by the people. And he was put on to public display and he was questioned and tempted and tried over and over again. Why did you take over Jesus? Why did you show off your glory? Isn't this where you ought to vindicate yourself? You're truly king. In other words, this is a climactic moment of Jesus' trial and temptation. And in this climactic moment of Jesus' trial and temptation, the Jews have mocked him. And the soldiers have said he's the king of the Jews and he's wearing a purple robe signifying a royal dignity, even though it's out of mockery. And he's wearing a crown of thorns. Now just let's just pause there. And then and Pilate says this interesting word, behold the man. Okay, this is significant. This is significant. Let me try to bring this out for you. In the other gospels, if you take a look at, for example, the book of Luke, the book of Mark, the book of Matthew, when you read the account of Jesus before Pilate, Pilate doesn't say this. 
Pilate, in other words, in those other gospel accounts, doesn't mention, doesn't exclaim before the crowds, behold the man as Jesus was wearing a crown of thorns, as Jesus was wearing a purple robe. In other words, each of the gospels emphasize something different about Christ's life and Christ's um, um, conviction before Pilate. So, for example, if you read the book of Luke, you hear and see an account of Christ being sent to Herod. So Pilate's confused about what to do about Jesus. He sends it to Herod. Herod's confused about Jesus and sends him back to Pilate. You don't see that in John's gospel. And if you read the book of Matthew, you don't get the Herod account. Instead, you get this little scene about Pilate's wife having a dream about Jesus. This dream has been tormenting me. They have nothing to do with this righteous man. He's sinless. But you don't get that. You You don't get mention of Pilate's wife in this account. And in the book of Mark, the, the exchange between Jesus and Pilate is incredibly brief. It's just a few verses long, incredibly brief. So in other words, the Gospels emphasize different aspects of Pilate's exchange with Jesus and Pilate before the Jews here. And this Gospel specifically wants to emphasize that Pilate actually said this. Behold the man. Behold the man. As Jesus was wearing a crown of thorns, as Jesus was wearing a purple robe. Now, If we've been a model reader of the Gospel of John, we've been keeping up with the series in John's Gospel, we know what book in the Old Testament has John always been connecting himself with? Genesis. The book of Genesis, exactly. John 1 verse 1, as we keep reminding ourselves, in the beginning was the Word, which echoes Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning was God, right? And in John 18, you saw that Jesus was specifically in a garden, when he was tempted and tried and taken captive by Satan. Where does that remind you of? Adam in the garden. Tempted and tried by Satan himself, right? So now, if we're reading onto this passage, keeping in mind the book of Genesis, and he's wearing a crown of thorns, where do you mention, where do you hear the crown of thorns mentioned in the book of Genesis chapter 3? The guilty verdict that God had mentioned to Adam. Remember what God said? Because of what you had done, Adam, now your relationship with the world has now changed. The the, the garden that you're working with will no longer cooperate with you. There will be thorns and thistles before you. Your labor will be hard work, in other words. And what is Jesus wearing? A crown of thorns signifying the very very punishment of God. And then now Pilate says in verse 5, Behold the man. Right after he says in a verdict, he is innocent. In Genesis 3.22, we say, we hear this from God. Genesis 3.22, God says to Adam, Behold the man. But not with an innocent verdict. Not with a verdict that Adam has no guilt, but rather in complete contrast to that. Adam was guilty. Behold the man has become like one of us. Let us bar him from the tree of life and let us cast him out out of the garden. Let us now give him thorns and thistles to work with. So you see this parallel. Adam in the garden, Jesus in the garden. That's where the temptations began. Adam seeing now a crown of, uh, uh, sorry, not, not a crown of thorns, but rather thorns to work with because this is the fall. But now Jesus seeing and hearing this voice from Pilate that he's innocent And hearing these words, behold the man, resonating God's words to Adam. Even though he's innocent, what would you expect now 
out of proclamation of innocence, not a punishment, but rather glory, vindication. He's innocent. He's innocent. So Adam was guilty. Of course you would expect a punishment. You will no longer have access to the tree of life. You will no longer be in the garden. You're cast out. And Jesus, innocent, behold the man. Just like God said to Adam. But rather, again, you would expect that, that you would get vindication. You get glory. Isn't this where God would rescue him? But instead of seeing a vindication, what do we see in verse 6? When the chief priests and the officers saw them, saw him, they crucified, they, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And then just to reiterate that God sees him as guiltless, Pilate almost speaking the voices of God ironically again, saying, take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Jesus, the true king, Jesus, the true image of God, Jesus, the true man, the true Adam, the second Adam, comes out guiltless, gets a verdict from Pilate and God, but instead of getting vindication and glory, he gets a punishment. Crucify him, crucify him. So Jesus in this passage, what John is trying to communicate in this passage is that Jesus is the true man. So note that and keep that in the back of your minds. but this narrative keeps going. Let's go to our second point. Jesus is not just a true man at this point. There's something more to him and to his character. Well, after Pilate reiterated in the end of verse 6, take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. In verse 7, it says, the Jews answered him, we have a law. In other words, to drive Pilate into a corner to make sure that Jesus really does die, he now, they now appeal to religious reasons. We have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. In other words, Pilate, he's not just making political claims. Jesus isn't just claiming to be a king. Jesus is also claiming to be a deity, a divine being. He's making not just political claims, but religious claims. And the Jews then, you know, probably referring to texts in Leviticus 22, anyone who blasphemes the name of God, anyone who makes an image of God out of themselves or anything else should be stoned. But remember, as we saw last week, the Jews had no political or legal authority to, to put the capital punishment on anyone. So they needed Roman jurisdiction and Roman authority to get this done. So they now cite their law, a religious law, that Jesus not only made himself a king, but also a son of God. And verse 8 is interesting. When Pilate heard the statement, he was even more afraid. He was even more afraid. All right? So the, the Jews referred to Jesus making a religious claim, made himself out to be some kind of deity, a son of God. When Pilate heard the statement, he was even more afraid. Now he's not just afraid, in other words, at this point, of the Jews and what they might do. If Pilate messes up here, maybe they would report Pilate to the higher Roman authorities. Maybe they would revolt. But for some reason, when Pilate hears that Jesus is also making theological, deifying claims about himself, he was even more afraid. Now, why was this the case? Why would Pilate be more scared when he hears that Jesus made himself out to be the Son of God? In other words, he was so, he was so scared that he actually entered back into the headquarters again. In other words, he, he went into a private place once again, and then he started to ask Jesus, where are you really from? So he hears Jesus makes himself out to be the son of God. Pilate gets more scared, takes him to the back. Okay, let me just make sure. Jesus, where are you really from? In other words, are you really a deity? Are you really a divine being? 
I want to make sure that I'm not doing anything wrong. In other words, if you really are a deity and a divine being, tell me, lest I get in trouble. Okay, remember, this requires some historical background again. The Romans, especially Pilate, they were a polytheistic culture. What does that mean? They believed in many gods, right? They had shrines all over the place. Even though Caesar was Lord, Caesar oversaw many different cults, many different religions, many different gods. And they made sure that all of these gods were appeased. So in a polytheistic culture, for example, I've used this example a lot, if you wanted to cross the seas, you made sure that you pay tribute to the god of Poseidon, you know, it's the sea gods, so that your travel would go smoothly. If you wanted to have more children, you paid a pilgrimage to the gods of fertility. If you, if you wanted your household to go well, you made sure that your household gods are appeased, right? In other words, Pilate represented a Roman culture that was highly superstitious, and highly religious and highly polytheistic. They believed in many gods and Pilate was doing his due diligence. In other words, Pilate wasn't against another god, right? They weren't exclusivist religions. If Jesus really was a divine being, Pilate needed to make sure, he needed to do his due diligence that I don't offend another being. Pilate, in other words, was superstitious. And his world was a bunch of supernatural beings that he needed to appease so that his life would go well, so that nothing bad would happen to him. Okay, Now, to bring this home to us, this is not alien in the modern world, especially not in Asia. Asia is very much like ancient Rome. Asia is very much like ancient Rome, where we all believe in different supernatural beings that we have to appease. If you want an easy example of this, you go to Bali. You remember when you go to Bali, some of you here were Jakartans, maybe, you know, you've rented places out in Bali, you've walked through restaurants in Bali, you see these little food offerings in the front of restaurants. And even if you're not, you know, uh, religious yourself and you own a property in Bali, you made sure that you put these food offerings in front of your buildings so that you would what? Appease the supernatural divine force, right? Just, just do your due diligence. You don't want, you don't want anything bad to happen to you. And this is what the people of Bali really believe in. This is prevalent there. You're just gonna do your thing. And here's the interesting thing about superstitious religious beliefs like that, and what Pilate is doing to Jesus. And this is what's gonna explain Pilate being afraid of Christ in one moment. And then later on, let's go of that fear and still delivers him to be crucified anyway. Superstitious religions and superstitiousness in general might cause you to be afraid so that you would appease the God or divine being for one moment, but it doesn't create piety. It doesn't create relationship. It doesn't create devotional, uh, a devotional life. Superstitiousness, in other words, might cause you to be afraid and do, cause you to do one particular religious act and then you get it done and over with, and then you move on with your life. You don't think about it anymore. So that's what you do in Bali. You go to a restaurant, you pay homage, and you put the offering there, and you don't really think about it the rest of the day. You, and the rest of your life could be completely secular. As long as you do that and you appease a supernatural divine being, you're good. Or let me just bring it home to you even further. This also doesn't just happen in Bali, friends. You know, I've been preparing uh, a wedding for myself, right? And, and I've been talking to a lot of people about weddings and, and marriages and a lot of those things. And I have lost count of how many people, and I find temptation even my own, in my own family, to ask this question. What date is your wedding on, Gray? 
Is it a lucky date, according to the Chinese calendar? And then you look at the wedding locations and wedding dates and wedding organizations, and particular dates were already booked like 16 months in advance, and other dates are completely open. And you're like thinking, why is that? And it's not because, oh, well, that's just high peak wedding season and everything is cheaper or everything is more glorious than that. No, no, no. They would say, no, no, it's bad. It's bad luck. You take another date, something bad's going to happen to you. You take this good date, though, oh, it's going to be a fortunate wedding. No divorce. <laughs> no one's going to cheat. You've got a prosperous life. Your kids are going to grow up playing violin and getting straight A's, right? <laughs> so, so, a, so, what is that? What is that belief, friends? Whether it be offerings in Bali or choosing supernatural dates that might cause you to have good fortune or bad fortune, depending on the date that you choose, what is that? That's superstitious religiosity. That's Pilate's life. Make sure you don't do this when you cross by that road. Make sure you don't do this. Make sure that when you have your own apartment building, you make sure you don't have the number four or 13. But what is superstitiousness? It is appeasing a God without having a relationship with that God. And notice, friends, the moment that wedding is done, you're never going to think about those dates again. You're never going to think about those deities again. You're never going to think about those religious forces behind those dates again. You appease the God, done. Transaction. Easy. So Paul's doing his due diligence. You know, you read Acts 17, for example. There were temples in ancient Greece and ancient Rome dedicated to an unknown God in case they missed a God out and they would offend the God. You know, there's a war coming. Maybe there was a God who's angry at us and we haven't appeased him enough. So we made sure that there's, an, there's, there's another temple to an unnamed God just in case there's a God we've left out. That's not unlike Asia. We constantly are still living and breathing in this, friends. Let me just be clear. There is nothing biblical about choosing special wedding dates at all. Don't ever do that in the name of Christianity. There's nothing biblical in the name of appeasing gods with little food sacrifices. You might want to do that out of cultural pressures. You might want to do that out of social expectations. Sure, but don't, don't put any more weight on them rather than purely cultural and social conventions. Or else you're still playing in a pilot's game. You're going to do your due diligence. And by the way, do we go to church for those reasons? Is this why we go to church? You come just to appease Jesus. I've done my duty. I've, done, I've, I've gone to church this time. We heard that from last week's sermon, right? As long as you go to church, you stay pure. You can do whatever you want on Monday to Friday, especially Friday. All right? You appease the God. Of, you can't appease the God of Christianity friends. He's not, he's not a tribal deity. He's not a local deity. He's not a petty God who needs you. That's why let's move, let's move forward. Where are you from? And Jesus gave him no answer. And here's what, here's what distinguishes the God of Christianity from any religious superstition that Jesus really is the true God, not a tribal, not a local, not, not a God who needs you, not a God who cares about dates. Paul said, you will not speak to me. He's offended. He's offended. Because why, why, why would he be offended? Even if he's a deity, why would Pilate be offended? A transactional deity is entitled to give you something back if you do something to them. 
If you show them an ounce of fear, you give them a, a sacrificial offering, they're obligated now to give you wealth. They're obligated now to respond to you. They're obligated to give you something back, right? But Pilate w- showed this fear, and then Jesus gave him no answer, and then Pilate gets even more offended. So how dare you? Look, I've taken you back to the headquarters again. Like, I've, I've shown you enough respect. How dare you not speak back to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Very much in line with the Roman Hellenistic polytheistic culture. They were, he was trying to barter, even if Jesus was the son of God. Listen, you might even be a deity, but listen, we got to work here. Here's Jesus' striking claim. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is making the profound claim that everything that's happening here, everything that's taking place, whether it be Pilate's authority or Caesar's authority that granted Pilate's authority, it's all been given to him. He's not a local God that Rome, the Roman authorities, that Caesar's authority could control. He's not a local God that is under the conditions of the higher suzerain God, namely Caesar. He is the God who's in control over this very situation. And this is the profound thing, friends. God was in control. Even while it looked like it was utterly hopeless for Christ. And in the midst of Pilate, the seemingly higher authority over Jesus, Jesus claimed to him, you would have no authority unless that had been given to you over me. So don't we dare treat him as if he's any other Roman God. No. And this God can't be appeased by our little petty sacrifices. This God is an utterly sovereign God who demands everything and who demands absolute and utter loyalty. That even Pilate himself is under his authority. And then in verse 12, it goes on, therefore, that Jesus is not just proclaiming divine authority. And I think Pilate's starting to get this. Pilate's wondering now. Pilate's starting to get worried. He, he doesn't know what exactly Jesus is standing for, but he knows he's guiltless. So verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend, and everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. All right? And this is an interesting claim. Okay, so, so Pilate's more afraid to release Jesus. And then when he wants to release Jesus even more, the Jews cry out, Hey, look, if you're a friend of Caesar, you would definitely have to be against Christ. Everyone who makes himself a king, namely Jesus, who's making himself a king apparently, right? Opposes Caesar. And Pilate was more afraid about this. Let me go to the third point. Jesus, who's not merely true man, Jesus, not merely true king, but Jesus was also, sorry, true God, but Jesus was also the true king and the true lamb. Let me try to get, let me try to communicate what's the significance of verses 12 to 16. So Paul's more afraid. The Jews now are claiming Caesar's name. So the Jews have been upping their ante, right? They're not only saying Jesus is creating social disruption, making himself out to be a king. Jesus is not only making religious claims, making himself out to be a son of God, but Jesus is also an enemy of Caesar. And Pilate, are you no friend of Caesar? In other words, how did the Jews up their ante? They're up, they upped their accusations. This time, 
not by invoking Jesus' claims, but by invoking Pilate's reputation. Pilate, your reputation's at stake. Pilate, your ego's at stake. Pilate, your authority's at stake. Are you not Caesar's friend? Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And this is what actually causes Pilate to start to begin to entertain the thoughts of crucifying Jesus. And skip down to verse 15 for a moment. They're emphatic about this. They cried out again, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And here's a striking thing. The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. Just, just notice the irony of that. What have the Jews been motivated by this whole time? Hatred of Rome. Hatred of Caesar. Freedom from Roman oppression. Freedom from Pilate's oppression. Freedom from Caesar's oppression. Why did they want to deliver up Jesus from the very beginning in 18, 13, and 14? Again, we saw it is expedient for Jesus to die so that Rome would get off our backs. One man should die for the many, right? But in a, in a mo- just to get what they want, just to get what they want, to get Rome off their backs, they actually appeal ironically and paradoxically against the king of the Jews to Caesar's authority, against their better belief. We have no king but Caesar. And it is then, at verse 16, he delivered them over to be crucified. So, let me try to express what's going on here, okay? Why was Jesus crucified as a lamb? Why was Jesus, the true king, crucified as a lamb? In one simple word, Jesus was crucified as a lamb by both Pilate on the one hand and the Jews on the other hand by the principle of pragmatism. By the principle of pragmatism. What does pragmatism mean? Pragmatism is this utilitarian way of thinking uh, that is completely the opposite of this, this, this idea. Truth for truth's sake. That's the opposite of pragmatism. Principle for principle's sake. I'm going to believe in the truth. I'm going to believe in the principle no matter what happens. That's the opposite of pragmatism. Pragmatism doesn't say truth for truth's sake, but rather truth for power's sake. I don't care what the truth is. I'm going to manipulate the truth to get power. I don't care what I really believe in. I'm going to use whatever is beneficial for me to make sure that I retain my power. So how does Pilate and the the Jews exemplify this? Well, what did Pilate know the truth was? This man is innocent, and not only that, he's afraid of him. He's starting to see that there's something divine about this man. This man is innocent, and this this man is something more than merely human, a kind of divine being. He knows that that's the truth, but he's pragmatic about it. But if this, if this is a truth that doesn't benefit me, if this is not what the people want to hear, I'm just going to change it. I'm going to appease the people, and I'm not going to care about what I believe in. How are the Jews being pragmatic? They know that the truth is what? Caesar's not really king. They've read the Old Testaments. God is one. They know deep inside their hearts that God is the Lord. But that's not benefiting me right now, so I'm just going to change my strategy. No longer appeal to religiosity, but I'm going to attack Pilate's authority, I'm going to attack Pilate's reputation, and I'm going to appeal to Caesar's authority just so I can get my way. Just so I can get my way. You see, friends, there's something profound about this, right? I mean, 
the fall of the true king of the universe, so to speak, right? The crucifixion of our Lord himself is due to pragmatic purposes of people just twisting the truth for their own way. It's very subtle, isn't it? It's very subtle. Whatever fits me. Luis, uh, pragmatism is all around us, right? One example of pragmatism, I was watching a show uh, called Bojack Horseman. Right? I don't know if you, if you watch this. It's a, it's a bit of a silly show, but one of the scenes in, in, one, of the, in one of the episodes, one of the characters, his name is Mr. Peanut Butter. It's a cartoon, okay? He was running, running for president or, or governor or something like that, and he was therefore making sure that he has informed opinions and informed judgments on particular issues so that he might actually win some votes, right? And so he was actually trying to be principled. He was trying to be a dogmatist. He was trying to be a principled person who cares about the truth. So what's a deep issue that people care about in the States? Well, gun control. So he, he said to his campaign manager, oh, people care about gun control. I better read up on gun control, make a public opinion about gun control, make a rousing speech that is informed and educated and well-principled. The campaign manager says, oh, man, you're so naive. Listen, I don't care what you believe in gun control. No, 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 you don't have to read anything on gun control. We'll tell you what to read after the polls come in. We see what everybody believes about gun control. Whatever the majority is, that's your view. Mr. Peanut Butter was like, oh, okay, that's easy. So what, what, So, in other words, what is the principle of pragmatism? It doesn't matter what you believe in. It doesn't matter what you believe in. Whatever it is that is most advantageous to you, you take that position. You take it. Does it benefit you to become a Christian? You become Christians. Is it against your interest to become a Christian? You start relinquishing Christianity. In other words, the death of our Lord and Christ is due to the hands of spineless men who couldn't stand up for the truth, but rather would bend the truth for their own benefit. And let me then get to the central part of this pericope, verses 12 to 16. Look at verse 13 to 14. Two images are invoked here. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and Aramaic Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of the preparation of the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour, he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So, Two central images are invoked by John to really communicate something to us. He intentionally invokes these two images. On the one hand, there's a judgment seat. And it is uh, a place called the Stone Pavement. And the historical records show that this judgment seat was in an elevated space. And it was where judgments would be rendered, verdicts would be cast. This is where a judge would say, approved, guilty or approved not guilty or innocent. That's the first image that John wants you to have in mind. And on the other hand, is a preparation of the Passover. Now, what's the Passover? We're reminding us over again, Passover is when Jesus commemorated the moment where an angel of death was sent down to Egypt to, to kill all the firstborn, firstborn sons, right, of Egypt. And to make sure that the firstborn child of the Israelites were not killed by the angel of death, there had to be a substitute. A lamb was slain so that the blood of the lamb would be smeared on the door so that the angel of death would pass them by because they knew that a lamb was slain in their behalf. 
So every Passover meal, they would slay sacrifices as a sin offering. They would slay sacrifices of a lamb, and this, the lamb, the blood of the lamb, would cover the sins of his people so that death would not overtake them. And how would these Passover meals be carried out? They were always offered up to God, who's who? A judge. In other words, a lamb sacrificial offering was always offered by a priest to God, the living judge, for God to approve of this sacrifice. So as Jesus was being delivered to be crucified, what are the two images that John wants you to keep in mind? A judgment seat where a verdict is being rendered and the lamb that was about to be slain. And here's the crux of this passage, friends. As we saw in John chapter 1, right? Jesus was the Lamb of God. Jesus was the Lamb of God, and Jesus was the innocent Lamb of God without blemish. And it is right at this moment where Caesar and Pilate and all the Jews were against him, rendering the verdict, crucify him, were also invoked the scene of the Passover where God is also approving giving an approving verdict of Jesus being the true lamb that would indeed take away the sin of the world. That's the gospel. The gospel is that Christ is the true lamb that would take away the sin of the world and God would say, I approve from the judgment throne. That's the gospel. Now, normally the sermon would end there and it would... Be well for our hearts to be reminded of the gospel. But let me just push a little bit further on this, all right? Because I think we need to hear this. A theme throughout this passage and throughout Jesus' crucifixion is Christ's silence. And God's silence. Even though Jesus says that he is the one who has an authority over this, he was calm and composed even though he was under the uttermost pressure and suffering, an innocent man condemned to die, the most unjust of suffering, he was silent like a lamb about to be slain. And in the middle of all this, he was still able to say, God is in complete and utter control, even though God was utterly silent and utterly quiet, hidden almost, when an innocent person was about to be slaughtered. Friends, do you realize that this is the heart of your faith? Do you realize that the heart of our faith is an innocent, suffering servant, a lamb about to be slain who is spotless, and a God who is silent before it? Because this is the God who doesn't eradicate suffering, but rather causes suffering to come to pass so that suffering might become meaningful and that God would bring out good out of suffering. Do we know in other words, that at the center of your faith is the silence of God before an innocent man's suffering. A God who doesn't take away suffering, but rather makes suffering meaningful. Recently, I was watching a, an interview that really broke my heart. It was by an M, a Grammy Award-winning artist, a Christian artist, and, uh, on BuzzFeed video, I won't mention the name, you could easily Google it up, just in this past week, and she was actually a pastor with her husband um, over a mega church of 10,000 people. And they had just proclaimed in recent years, they've quit that job, 
that they have lost their faith in Christ. And they've lost their faith in Christ. And in this interview, she detailed how that came about. She detailed how that came about. One of the things that happened that led to her eventually abandoning the faith is that she was actually having to have children, trying to have children with her husband. And she couldn't. She couldn't have kids with her husband. And she said, in the midst of the ministry and in the midst of my emotional and personal heartbreak of not being able to have children, the church was not a, 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 a source of comfort for me, but rather a constant source, source of pressure. They were constantly telling me, you're not praying hard enough. They're constantly telling me, God is good and wants you to have children. They're constantly telling me you're not having enough faith. They're constantly telling me, just say it and God will give you children. And in the moments of her deepest, darkest despair, she was also traveling throughout Europe. And she was visiting the concentration camps that haunts Europe because of Nazi Germany. And she saw the faces of those men and women suffering in those concentration camps. And she was asking the question, where was God? And in this deep wrestling with her prayers being unanswered and her church having a theology and her own theology telling her that God was a God who is vindicated by giving us everything that we've wanted, that God is a God that is vindicated by giving us more of what we pray for if we just had enough faith. And contrast that with the Nazi concentration camps where thousands were slaughtered and the suffering of the world. And finally, her child being born with Down syndrome. She went back to her church and she went back to her faith and she said, God doesn't exist. And in the interview it was profound to me because there were lines in that interview that showed to us what she, her words, she had a transactional faith. What did she say about her, her faith? I married the most Christian guy I could have ever met. We did everything just right. We didn't have sex before marriage. We waited till we kissed. We did everything just right. We had a church of 10,000 people. The church took care of all of our housing. We were shepherding. The, we were touring the world with conferences, playing music. We were winning awards. We did everything right. But God didn't answer my prayers. God, in other words, was silent. Friends, I've lost also count. How many times have we heard it said to ourselves, Maybe sometimes it's our own voice. If God was truly good, he'd give us everything we've ever wanted. How many times have we justified our sinful tendencies because we told ourselves, this is how we make God look attractive to the world. If we stop suffering, if we get a better health, get our children into better schools, get our businesses to run better, than those people of other faiths or those people who have no faiths? How many times have we thought to ourselves that, in other words, the way to know that God exists and God is good and the way to proclaim his name in this world is to showcase to the world how much more we're successful than them. Passages like this is precisely what contradicts that kind of theology. And it is exactly that kind of theology that fuels atheism, and rightly so, because that God doesn't exist. The God that promises you wealth for your faith, the God that promises you more health and more happiness for your, everything that you've ever wanted, 
that God is not the God of the Bible. This is the God that exists. Not the one who takes away your suffering, but the one that actually makes suffering meaningful and the one that brings good out of suffering. And if you know, do you want to know what vindicates this God? Do you want to know what, what vindicates your faith? Do you know what vindicated the faith of the martyrs in the second century? How did the Romans, how did the world see that Christianity was the true faith? How did the world, in other words, became swept by the faith of Christianity, this faith that was persecuted, hated, and despised by the societies, how did they come to see that this is the true faith and Jesus Christ was the true God? By seeing that they were richer? By seeing that they were more prosperous? By seeing that they were healthier? By seeing that their kids were more educated? How? You read the historical records, a constant note is constantly being expressed. What is it? Look at how well they suffered. Look at how well they suffered. Look at how well they took up the cross. Look at how well they took up death. Look at how well they continually sung hymns when they too were being crucified and when they were thrown into the lion's den. What vindicates your God? Friends, it's not your success, not your achievement. It's the fact that you like Paul in Romans had said, could be like a lamb led to the slaughter. And in fact, during that moment of suffering, you can say to the world, God is enough. Because Christ was first silent for you. And Christ was the true lamb for you. When you see Christ suffering for you, a silent lamb, you could be silent and persevere even in the midst of suffering for him. Let us pray. Father, it is an amazing truth, Lord God, that you're not the God who delights in suffering, but rather you are a God who promises to make good out of our suffering. You're not a God who takes away our suffering, but rather you're a God who makes our suffering meaningful and you bring good out of evil. Father, we're convicted of that and we see that, Lord God, by the faith of the only obedient and only innocent one who was slain on our behalf. You were silent, but you were not inactive because it is precisely in the silence of God do we see the victory of Christ. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.